Yes, it's time once again for another episode of Best Case Ever, the mini podcast series. I'm your host, Dr. Rajiv Thavanathan. Our guest today is Dr. Alan Sheffern. He's a pediatric emergency physician at CHEO, that's the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario, and he's cross-appointed to the University of Ottawa Faculty of Medicine's Department of Emergency Medicine. He's currently the PEM division lead for point-of-care ultrasound, and as such, he's got an interest in how we can incorporate POCUS into Peds Emerge Care. Dr. Sheffern, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thanks for having me, and it's a pleasure to be able to be on this forum with you. When I was a younger staff, just really figuring out my POCUS skill set, I saw a case that I think changed my view of how to integrate POCUS into rapid clinical assessment at the bedside. Well, that sounds like something we'd be into. Tell us about the case. It's your typical day shift, luckily, and a triage nurse comes back to the emergency physician's area and says, there's a patient that she's worried about. It's a school-aged kid who's come in and he's he had a history of a GI-type illness, but he's grunty and looking mottled and she's worried about him. So she's putting him in the resuscitation room. So whenever a triage nurse gets that worried, I get worried because they see all these kids and they have to pick out that needle in the haystack. So I I make my way over to the uh, resuscitation room and as I'm walking, I'm starting to think about what do I need to do? What's going on with this kid? And as I enter the room, you see this kid laid out on the stretcher and he's sick. You know, if you think about your pediatric assessment triangle, he's working hard to breathe, he's modeled, he's alert and talking to us, but he looks sick. And as I approach the bedside, I see his vital signs are on the monitor, he's quite tachycardic, he's in the mid-100s, his blood pressure is okay for a school-age kid, his oxygen saturation's in the mid-80s. So the how does he look question made me nervous. His vitals made me nervous and the triage nurse made me nervous. So this is a kid who was going to get my full attention, my full effort until we got him better. Yeah, no kidding. So what did you do? I say hello. I start assessing. His airway is pain. He's able to talk to us, but he's grunting. He's sick. He can't really talk in full sentences. I take a listen to him. He's got good air entry on the right. He's got no air entry on the left. His heart sounds seem okay feel his pulses. They're strong right now. His peripheral um, cap refill, though, is about four to five seconds, so it's concerning. His abdomen is tense, but he's got bowel sounds. Neurologically, as I said, he's talking to us, so I'm not overly concerned about that yet. And he's modeled, so I'm thinking I need to start intervening. As I'm doing this, I start asking for intravenous access. And what are you what are you thinking at this point? My working diagnosis at first is this kid is in shock. He's probably septic. I'm worried about an abdominal cause. I'm worried about a chest cause based on both the story and the very brief clinical assessment. But I need intravenous access. I need to start fluid resuscitation and I need to give uh, antibiotics. It's kind of weird though, right? Because he's got chest findings and hypoxia, but the history almost sounds like it's more of an abdo source. So it's hard to like tease those apart. Like sometimes this is relatively easy in adults because if they're stable enough for the scanner, it's as simple as that. You just send them there. Yeah. So this kid wasn't stable to go anywhere. Right? He was quite unwell, and one of the challenges that we ran into is that he was difficult to get IV access for. And you start thinking, okay, so now we're kind of stuck because we need intravenous access to start giving him intravenous fluid. I want to give this kid antibiotics on spec. 
I can't give that without without intravenous access. So anything I want to do is now delayed because this kid can't go anywhere and I can't bring anything to the bedside like an x-ray because there's people actively working on this kid. So what do you do? I do ultrasound. And so I said, internally, I can look at the chest. At this point in my career, we don't have a pediatric rush protocol. I'm just figuring out for myself how I'm going to integrate this technology into the sickest of kids. But I know what lungs look like. And I know what fluid looks like. And I know what an abdomen should look like. I know what fluid in the abdomen looks like. So while the nurses are trying to get IV access, I just put the probe on the left side of the chest because this is where I'm concerned. And all I see on the ultrasound is the left chest full of fluid. There's no lung other than a little corner of consolidated lung on the distal part of the screen. And so to me, using an ultrasound, investing that five to 10 seconds at the bedside showed me that he had a pleural effusion that was massive and a lung that was fairly non-existent on the left side. So I knew right then and there, not only did I need intravenous access, intravenous antibiotics, I needed a way to get this fluid out of his chest. Yeah, because you know you kind of have a diagnosis ish, but you're not really out of the woods yet. You still have a bunch of priorities you're trying to juggle. When you're in these situations, time either stands still or races. And so we talk about trying to get IV access in the first minute to two minutes, but in real life, sometimes it's really tough to make that call. But we were able to get vascular access, start IV resuscitation, IV fluid resuscitation, we gave him antibiotics fairly quickly after that. And then we were able to confirm what we thought was going on with the portable chest x-ray. But if you look at the timestamps of when the ultrasound was done and the image was saved to when the x-ray image was saved, about 40 minutes difference. Wow, that's a big difference. It's a big difference, right? Because to get a portable chest x-ray, you've got to have a patient who can, right? We need to be able to abandon the bedside. We need to call the radiology tech. They need to come and do it. They bring the x-ray machine with them. Then they've got to put the image on the system so we can review it. So there's time delays. My ultrasound took five to 10 seconds. Now, it doesn't give me all the information, but it gave me a ton. And you've alluded to a few times now, difficulty getting IV access. Looking back on it, knowing what you know now, would you have done anything differently when it comes to that? I think we could have decided to go for intraosseous access sooner. The challenge is always with that awake, alert kid who can feel and sense things. And there is sort of a mental barrier to explaining to a caregiver, we're going to put a needle in your kid's bone if he can feel it. Mm -hmm. The easy kids are the ones who are CPR level or real like full on resuscitation, unconscious. It's easy to jump to it because you don't have that mental block. So tell me about your approach to vascular access in kids with shock, because, you know, historically, we're always taught about kind of more about number of attempts. But lately, I've been turning it over in my head that maybe it's about like the amount of time they're in the recess bay. Like, what do you think? depends on the kid. I think it's the sicker the kid, the less delayed you want. The kids who are maybe a little bit grayer, there's less thought or less structure that goes into the thought process. Sorry, Alan, when you say grayer, do you mean like actually literally grayer? No, no, like in a grayer zone. They're not as sick as maybe the really sick kids. But those are the ones that are challenging because I think our gut instinct is we don't want to hurt them. And you think that leads to delays? It does lead to delays. And we try to teach those delays out of people by simulation, but it's real life. It's hard sometimes to make those calls. Now, you said that the kid was normotensive when you went to go see him though, right? So does that give you any more sort of leeway, any more time to play around and figure out what's going on before you do some interventions? No, 
The simple presence of a normal blood pressure does not exclude a diagnosis of, of shock. But that kind of what you're suggesting is a mistake that a lot of people often make, especially if they don't see kids day in and day out. Waiting for the blood pressure to drop to diagnose and treat shock is problematic. So in the end, this kid didn't require an airway intervention despite his hypoxia, was treated basically empirically for septic shock, yep. uh, but had a massive pleural effusion that was actually responsible for his hemodynamic compromise. Yeah. Can you just tell us what the final diagnosis ended up being and how the case resolved? Yeah. So... Once we got intravenous access, we gave him a significant amount of intravenous fluids. I think we gave him two to three 20 cc per kilo normal saline boluses. And at this time, we now have our chest x-ray. And what we saw in the chest x-ray was that the left hemithorax was full of fluid. All of his mediastinal organs were pushed to the right. So his heart and his great vessel were all on the right side of the chest. So it turned out he had a tension hydrothorax from this massive fluid accumulation on the left side of the chest. And I think he ended up having um, a bacteria grow out of his pleural effusion fluid, which then helped direct treatment. I think he, he had a prolonged course in hospital, but in the end did quite well and has not had any subsequent issues based on my knowledge of the case. Wow. So it sounds like in the end, it really was septic shock because of the underlying infection, which is a form of distributive shock, but combined with the obstructive shock element of the tension hydrothorax. Now, a lot of our listeners might be familiar with tension pneumothorax, where like a run-of-the-mill pneumothorax, there's air where there shouldn't be in the pleural space. And ultimately, this pressure builds up until it impairs venous return to the heart. And because of the inadequate diastolic filling, that can lead to cardiopulmonary collapse. Now, Interestingly, that may or may not happen with shift of the mediastinal structures like we're usually taught. Hydrothorax is basically the same thing, just with fluid instead of air. And it sounds like POCUS got you to the answer a lot quicker. I think so. And I'll readily admit my bias that I'm a POCUS user, I'm a POCUS advocate. It helped me. So this is obviously a really rare entity, and there's an excellent case report in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine describing the pathophysiology and the treatment of tension hydrothorax. Some of the takeaways I took from the article is that massive pleural effusions account for 10% of all pleural effusions, and it's defined by occupying greater than two-thirds of the hemithorax. Now, the vast majority of these, like 70% are malignant, but can be from lots of different causes like trauma, chylothorax, pancreatitis, cirrhosis, paranemonic, like in this case, and other autoimmune diseases. Now, the indications for tube thoracostomy are what you would think. Basically, in massive pleural infusions, it includes associated pneumo or hemothorax, respiratory and or hemodynamic instability, and they talk about grading of paranemonic effusions, so like grade three to five paranemonic effusions. I think that's probably outside the scope of what we're expected to know in emergency medicine. But the main point is that there's no absolute contraindications for chest tube placement, unless you're aware of adherence of the lung to the chest wall, in which case a thoracentesis might be more helpful. At any rate, this is an amazing case. I'm so happy the kid did well. And Alan, it sounds like you had the backup you needed, the right people, the right tools to get this kid the right treatment. Now, is there anything else you want to add for our listeners before we say, you know, so long, good night, fare thee well? If anybody's listening to this and wants to enhance their point-of-care ultrasound skills, uh, we'll be having a course for people who have done ultrasound before at the upcoming Canadian Association of Emergency Physicians Conference in Ottawa. We'll be doing a, the first pediatric course that CAPE has offered. So we'll be trialing that. And hopefully, if we have enough interest in that, we'll be able to expand our course offerings. 
I think there's a ton of PEMPOCUS courses out there. We have a network called the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Point of Care Ultrasound Network, p2network.com. We have links to a lot of the courses out there, a lot of the resources out there. I'm excited to see what people are interested in doing and what we can offer. That's awesome. And listen, Dr. Sheffrin, Alan, buddy, pal, thank you so much for making the time to talk to me today. I really appreciate it. It's, it's always fun hanging out with you. And to the rest of you, that is it for now. For another Best Case Ever, I'm Rajiv Thavanathan. If you want to ask questions, recommend guests, or even have a case of your own, you should get at me on Twitter. I'm at Rajiv Thava. That's R-A-J-I-V-T-H-A-V-A. And until next time, keep that stick on the ice. Bye.